The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is an opportunity, at least for state media and Kremlin image makers, to burnish Russia's own reputation uh, in its past involvement in Afghanistan. China sees Afghanistan as a potential safe haven for weaker militants and weaker terrorists. And the more unstable the country is, the more threat from the weaker militants and weaker groups will be against China. And so, so Pakistan's stance on what it wants is a relationship with the U.S. that goes beyond Afghanistan. Washington will be hard-pressed to justify such a relationship with Pakistan when it sees the outcome in Afghanistan in many ways as at least partly the product of this sort of long-alleged double game by Pakistan. The lack of consultation with the Allies when American forces first left in the beginning of the summer, and then again a lack of consultation when the sort of final drawdown was announced. And I think that is currently making for a somewhat complicated environment between Washington and Berlin. It has discredited the notion that the United States can successfully intervene and promote regime change to a stable or secular government. I'm Bryce Klen, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 27th, 2021. Much of the world has been watching the rapidly developing situation in Afghanistan with a mix of shock and anguish. I spoke with five experts to get a sense of how the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is being perceived around the world. In this episode, you will hear an analysis of the reactions from Pakistan, Iran, China, Russia, and Germany. Quick note, before each interview, I will briefly introduce each guest. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 27th, The World Reacts to Afghanistan. Please note that these interviews were recorded before Thursday's attack on the Kabul airport. Now, here's my conversation with Medea Afsal, the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. Her research focuses on Pakistan, among other topics. Medea, thank you so much for joining me. Pakistan's relationship to the war in Afghanistan is extremely complex. And before we get into some of that, I want to start with the a few more recent developments. What was the reaction in the Pakistani government as the Taliban entered Kabul last week? Well, Pakistan's official line on this for the last many months has been that it supports a peaceful settlement in Afghanistan, that it supported the intra-Afghan peace process. And it also had signed on to a statement uh, as part of the Troika Plus of countries, that's uh, Russia, China, the U.S. and Pakistan, saying that it would not support the restoration of the Islamic Emirate in, in Afghanistan, basically saying it would not support a Taliban military takeover. Of course, sort of all of this support of the Afghan peace process essentially became moot when the Taliban took over militarily and took over Kabul uh, last week. So, you know, the, the Pakistani government has tried 
to be careful, and the emphasis is on tried, and I'll, I'll get into that in a second, has tried to be careful in terms of its official statements. Again, still saying it, it wants an inclusive government, a peaceful settlement in Afghanistan. But privately, uh, many have been gloating in Pakistan, sort of cheering on the downfall of the Ghani government, with whom um, Pakistan had a troubled relationship and a relationship that in recent months had really just fallen through altogether. Next to that, celebrating um, in some ways the, the rise of uh, the Taliban. So so I had said privately, and I'll also say that they've tried to keep the, the messaging focused uh, from the government side. That notwithstanding, uh, there were still government ministers who tweeted out sort of statements that seemed very supportive of the Taliban. And in fact, even the prime minister, the day after the Taliban took over Kabul, in sort of an aside at a curriculum launch ceremony in Islamabad, said that in Afghanistan, they've broken the shackles of slavery, you know, uh, which was construed to mean to be uh, supportive of the, the Taliban takeover. So the, the messaging has wavered a little bit. I will also say that Pakistan's public messaging has been, especially to U.S. audiences, uh, that it is very worried about uh, a blowback uh, from the the TTP, the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan, which is a terrorist group that is responsible for killing tens of thousands of Pakistanis that is affiliated with the Afghan Taliban. Uh, and Pakistan worries about a resurgence uh, of the TTP and how that will affect the country. That being said, this is something that not all Pakistanis are worried about. They think of the TTP as a group that is not related to the Afghan Taliban. And they think of the TTP as a conspiracy from, from India. And so in that sense, they have not internalized this worry. So I'm curious, did the, did the Taliban's rapid takeover of Afghanistan catch Pakistani analysts by surprise? I think it did. Um, much as it caught many analysts, um, you know, uh, even in the U.S., by surprise, I think it caught uh, people in Pakistan and analysts in Pakistan by surprise. Pakistan officially had been saying that the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan as long as it took to achieve some kind of peace settlement uh, in Afghanistan. And so, you know, it had been characterizing uh, the withdrawal as a precipitous withdrawal and worrying about the consequences for Pakistan. I think Pakistan really worried, though, that there would be a protracted civil war in Afghanistan and it worried about the instability that would cause Pakistan, not just uh, from, again, space for the TTP, but also uh, in terms of the refugee flows that would increase into, into Pakistan. You know, Pakistan already houses uh, about 3 million Afghan refugees and has made it clear that it doesn't want to accept more. And so it had worried quite a bit about that. And that had been sort of the, again, the, the official messaging. That is not obviously something that, you know, the protracted civil war did not come to pass because of this quick Taliban victory. I think it's fair to say that it took uh, many by surprise. You mentioned the TTP. I'm curious, how does what does the Taliban's takeover mean for other jihadist groups that are in Pakistan? Well, in terms of the TTP, one thing that we've already seen, you know, since last year is that the TTP as the Taliban has been ascendant, you know, after the U.S.-Taliban deal has been resurgent, um, has been regrouping, has been increasing its attacks. So the resurgence is already visible there. Another thing that has actually happened in just the last few weeks is that the Afghan Taliban, when it's released prisoners at various places in Afghanistan, including at Bagram, it has released, it seems like, scores of TTP fighters, if not more. So that spells a real sort of clear and present danger in many ways to Pakistan. But I think this goes beyond the TTP. I think this is, you know, certainly the TTP will be emboldened not just because of logistical space, but because of an ideological boon that a Taliban victory gives to it. But that ideological boon applies to other uh, jihadist groups as well. Of course, you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS-K. ISIS-K has attacked targets within Pakistan. And then Kashmiri-focused jihadist groups like the Lashkar-e-Taiba all think of this as an ideological victory for them. 
And beyond jihadist groups, I think this also has an effect on other fundamentalist groups, on the extreme right of sort of the the spectrum in Pakistan that may not necessarily be violent yet, but uh, are are certainly uh, fundamentalist groups. And I think this may prove to boost them in a way that ultimately threatens the Pakistani state's authority. So these are all reasons why the Pakistani state certainly should uh, have reason to be worried uh, about an Afghan Taliban victory. I think this is not a simple outcome for Pakistan. This is this is just complicated things in the region, certainly obviously in Afghanistan, but also in Pakistan and in the region more broadly, much more than in previous years. So let's rewind a little bit. You've described Pakistan's policy toward Afghanistan as a double game. How has Pakistan, up to this point in the conflict, played both sides? And how does that affect their sort of mixed messaging at this moment? I mean, I think this story goes way back to, obviously, the fact that Pakistan uh, was involved in the Soviet-Afghan war. And at that point, Pakistan and the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were allied in helping train, fund, arm uh, the Mujahideen who fought against the Soviets uh, and who eventually defeated the Soviets. So that was, um, you know, in the 80s, uh, an alliance. In the 1990s, when the U.S. had left the region, Pakistan supported the Taliban, the same Taliban that you see today. And in 1996, when the Taliban came to power, uh, Pakistan was one of three countries to recognize the Taliban government. And, you know, very broadly, Pakistan's sort of stance on Afghanistan can be explained by this concept of strategic depth. And that essentially is that Pakistan wants a government friendly to it in Afghanistan because it wants to avoid being encircled, if you will, by unfriendly governments. You know, it has India on its east. It wants to avoid a government unfriendly to it and friendly to India on its west in Afghanistan. And so that is essentially the reason it supported a Taliban government in the 1990s. After 9-11, of course, Pakistan uh, allied with the U.S. in the war on terror and against the Taliban. But when the Taliban were defeated, they sought sanctuary in Pakistan. So that is the double game. Pakistan has denied providing support to the Taliban over the years, but these links are well known and well understood. And even Pakistan's own interior minister uh, said quite recently uh, that the Taliban's families live in Pakistan and that they come uh, to Pakistan for for medical care. And of course, Pakistan's well-documented and well-understood relationship with the Taliban is what allowed it to participate in the Afghan peace process, essentially to bring the Taliban to the table for talks uh, with the U.S. Uh, in Doha. So, you know, Pakistan was able to assert pressure and it actually released Mullah Baradar for him to come to the table uh, and the Taliban to come to the table for peace talks that eventually led to the U.S.-Taliban agreement uh, signed last year. So that's sort of the, the the backstory. It is obviously, you know, Pakistan was allied with the U.S. in the war on terror, as I said. But one of the reasons that the Taliban was able to regroup over the time period, you know, over the last 20 years is because it had sanctuary in Pakistan. So that's what I'm talking about here. So so one of the things I, I think you, you sort of mentioned in passing were the Pakistani intelligences, intelligence services, the ISI's relationship with the Taliban. They've been long accused of helping of helping the Taliban. What is the ISI's view of the Taliban's victory? Well the ISI's view is not necessarily public. There are previous heads of the ISI and other former army officials who have in Pakistan been gloating about the Taliban's victory. But the ISI is quiet on this. You know, the the messaging, as I said, from Pakistan is that this poses a problem to Pakistan in terms of problems for security and in terms of problems for 
uh, the fact that the TTP will now start attacking the, the Pakistani state. That is sort of the, the official line there. In a closed-door briefing that was held recently, the Pakistani chief of army staff and the head of the uh, inter-services intelligence, the ISI, did state to lawmakers sort of this worry of the TTP resurgence. And this is something they don't uh, say publicly. They called the TTP and the Afghan Taliban two sides of the same coin, right? So they acknowledge the links between the TTP and the Afghan Taliban, the close ideological links. This is something they don't talk about publicly. But publicly, Pakistan is saying that it's worried about a TTP resurgence. So let's zoom out a little bit. My, my last question to you is, what, what do you think these events mean for the future of U.S.-Pakistani relations? You know, in the run-up to the events of these past couple of weeks, when it was becoming clear that the Taliban would at the very least be a, a dominant force in, in Afghanistan, where when they were swiftly taking obviously the countryside reaching cities, but not had not yet taken any major city. I wrote that there would be little to no appetite uh, in Washington to engage with Pakistan on matters other than Afghanistan going ahead if you know Afghanistan is in deep conflict or in Taliban hands. And now we see that Afghanistan is in Taliban hands. And so so Pakistan's stance on what it wants is a relationship with the U.S. that goes beyond Afghanistan. In Washington, Washington will be hard-pressed to justify such a relationship with Pakistan when it sees the outcome in Afghanistan in many ways as at least partly the product of this sort of long-alleged double game by Pakistan. And so, A, I guess my first answer would be that Afghanistan will still define the relationship going forward. Now, I think there can be counterterrorism cooperation, and especially sort of this over-the-horizon counterterrorism cooperation that we talk about, that Pakistan can help with. And there are certainly some counterterrorism goals that are aligned between the two countries. I mean, both, you know, Pakistan will want Washington's help against the TTP. And Pakistan has, over the years, taken Washington's help with the TTP. So, again, this is something that Pakistan publicly says that, you know, it says it won't provide bases, uh, that it won't provide any sort of access. But privately, the question is, what kind of conversation is being had about cooperation, intelligence cooperation, other forms of counterterrorism cooperation? And is that something where the U.S. and Pakistan can cooperate going ahead? I think that will, in some sense, again, define you know how much trust is built, whether there might be an appetite for looking at the relationship beyond Afghanistan going ahead. And then the third thing I'll say is that, again, Pakistan has sort of long talked about or at least this year have been talking quite consistently about geoeconomics, wanting the relationship with Washington, again, to be based on things uh, like trade and investment. For that, it has to provide the incentives for Washington to engage in, with Pakistan in terms of trade and investment, in terms of a hospitable climate. So I would say that, you know, that kind of ask by Pakistan is not going to be met by Washington unless Pakistan itself provides something that Washington will want to get involved in, in terms of a hospitable climate. So sort of those are, I, I guess, you know, the top three things. The, the, the last thing maybe I'll mention is that there's the question of Pakistan's recognition of a potential Taliban government once it's formed. Is Pakistan going to be one of the first countries to recognize it or not? Pakistan has said publicly that it doesn't want to make a unilateral decision on this, and it will make a decision only after consultation, especially with regional countries. I mean, one can take that to mean, you know, China and Russia. The question is, if, you know, many governments in the West are not recognizing the Taliban, but the Pakistani government at some point decides to, even if it is after Russia and China do. What does it mean for Pakistan's relationship with the U.S.? You know, is Pakistan going to be thought of on this sort of other side camp? And Pakistan is 
concerned about that. It's, it's uh, you know, this is something that is driving its sort of deliberative kind of decision making on this, or at least the public posture on this. Um, so that's going to be something to look at and look for going ahead. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Suzanne Maloney is the Vice President and Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, where she researches Iran and other issues in the Gulf. Suzanne, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Get us started. What was the reaction in Iran to the events in Afghanistan? The Iranians are watching the events unfold in Afghanistan with a mixture of exuberance and trepidation. Exuberance because the deep fear that Afghans have exhibited over the departure of American troops and the sudden collapse of the Afghan government has uh, validated a narrative on the part of the uh, Iranian leadership, um, a narrative of American failure, of American incompetence, of American isolation in the world. And in particular, it has discredited the notion, one that of course has a lot of historical baggage in Iran, that the United States can uh, successfully intervene and promote regime change to a stable or secular government. Uh, That is one of the foremost uh, fears of a paranoid Iranian leadership for many years. And so to see this uh, end in Afghanistan with the reconquest of the Taliban and the virtual collapse of of any uh, capacity of the government that the Americans had invested so much time and money and human treasure uh, in trying to establish um, really uh, legitimizes, I think, the Iranian leadership perspective, dating back to the 79 revolution that America cannot do a damn thing. That was one of Ayatollah Khomeini's slogans. And, uh, you know, this has played out, of course, in a way that the Iranian leadership is very receptive to uh, over the course of the past few weeks. I think there's also a sense of trepidation, even if it's not fully expressed, because there's a long history between the Islamic Republic and the Taliban, one of instrumental cooperation in recent years, but one that in its original uh, conception um, was, in fact, quite antagonistic. I, I happened to be in Iran in 1998 when the two countries almost went to war. Uh, after the Taliban killed a number of Iranian diplomats and journalists. And it was a very real sense of um, animosity between the two sets of leaders, uh, despite some common commitment to Islamist rule. They have virulently (laughs) oppositional ideologies. So let's dig into that a little bit more. How has the Iranian government positioned itself with respect to the Taliban in more recent years as it's become clear that the Taliban would at least, you know, a few years ago, at least be some part of a power sharing agreement and now fully in control of the country, you know, in, in spite of their antagonistic relationship. Well, the Iranians from from the very start of the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan have sought to keep their options open. They cooperated, at least indirectly, with the initial American intervention in the country, um, helping both to facilitate the military action under Operation Enduring Freedom, but also helping uh, on the diplomatic stage with the establishment of the uh, Afghan government. And and this has been both of these, uh, you know, sets of engagements have been talked about extensively by participants on both sides. Just now stepped down Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, a number of officials in the Bush administration, and um, there's, you know, sort of a, a copious history around this. But what was clear even um, in the successive years is that the Iranians did not want to foreclose their options. And so they uh, opened up dialogue and engagement with the Taliban, despite a very sensitive history. You know, as as it became clear that the Afghan government was going to have to accommodate in some form um, the continued presence and, and influence of the Taliban, the Iranians have increased their engagement, their support, and really, you know, direct cooperation. In fact, some of the final diplomacy around this whole issue played out in Tehran with Taliban leaders present there. That's something that 20 years ago would have been utterly inconceivable. But for the Iranians, uh, you know, this is uh, very much in line with the way that they have played their intervention in other countries, 
whether it's Iraq or Lebanon or elsewhere, they have sought to ensure that they essentially have engagement and contacts and some influence over all the array of players who might come to the fore. And that is a way of preserving their own interests. It's also just a way of hedging uh, uncertain outcomes, ensuring that they have some ability to uh, interact with and and hopefully shape a, a future outcome in Afghanistan, irrespective of whether the Taliban prevailed or whether the United States would manage to maintain the Afghan government after its departure. So Iran obviously shares a, a large border with Afghanistan, and a lot of observers anticipate a large flow of refugees out of Afghanistan. What has Iran's policy been on refugees thus far? Well, Iran has hosted uh, millions of Afghan refugees for four decades, and this has been a, a source at times of some tension between the two countries, and also at times of some tension within Iran. I think most uh, would assess that Afghan refugees in Iran have not been treated particularly well by Iranians. They have essentially uh, been forced into a kind of second-class citizenship, even though many of them have lived out their lives uh, without having an alternative home to return to. You know, at this point, a new flow of refugees coming into Iran uh, at a time where the country is still dealing with not just the economic impact and disruption of significant U.S. sanctions, but also not a new wave, but really almost a consistent tsunami of health and economic fallout from COVID. Uh, Iran is at some of its highest highest death tolls of the pandemic, uh, even though it was one of the first countries to experience the pandemic outside of East Asia. And so we've seen this kind of sustained, uh, very, very severe impact on Iran. The, uh, the, the influx of hundreds of thousands or even more new refugees from Afghanistan, I think, will very much strain the Iranian economy and Iranian society, given the frictions. Just stepping back for a second, does Iran view the, the U.S. retreat from Afghanistan as, as sort of one singular move? within the region or as the continuation of a larger U.S. retreat from the Middle East? I think there is, as always with Iran, no singular story that defines Iranian views of the United States. But from a leadership perspective, there is both a sense that the United States has uh, very much sought to draw back from its deep engagement of the past 20 years and shift to a, a different kind of a policy and a different kind of uh, an engagement with far less boots on the ground. That doesn't necessarily reassure <laughs> the leadership, despite the fact that they consider uh, American troops a uh, grave threat to their own preservation. There is concern that the American withdrawal is, in fact, part of a larger conspiracy on the part of the United States to sow discord uh, from further away while protecting itself. But I think it, you know, there is a narrative um, within Iran that is deeply problematic for the United States, which is that, you know, this is a, a country that has, you know, really failed to live up to its commitments to its Afghan allies, and so. If uh, you know Iranian human rights defenders, uh, the Iranian population looks very much to the United States and the West uh, for cultural influence, for political aspiration. The message that their own government is going to be conveying and has been conveying is one that the United States is a humiliated, weakened power. Its empire has uh, collapsed. And there's really um, no opportunities that are available uh, with or from the United States that cannot be better achieved by the Islamic Republic and its circle of influence. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Sure. Thanks an awful lot. Good to talk to you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yun Sun is the director of the China program at the Stimson Center. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get started. How has the Chinese government reacted to the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? Ah, that's a that's a that's a great question. How has the Chinese government reacted to the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? I think just looking at the mechanics of how the withdrawal happened. And the chaos it has created uh, in terms of not only the Kabul airport, but also the uh, the scramble to get American nationals and also the Afghan nationals out of the country. I think for for Chinese, honestly, that's an emotionally gratifying experience. Like what the Chinese foreign ministry has said, that this experience has told the world and showed the Americans that the American model of uh, of intervention model of trying to establish Western democracy in a country like uh, like Afghanistan has completely failed. So I think for China, this is a validation of the failure of the American uh, foreign policy and therefore opens a lot of opportunities and opens a lot of doors for China to present itself as a responsible leader and as a leader that could come up with alternative constructive approach forward in Afghanistan. So I think that's the first Chinese response. The second response is that we have seen that while China had invited a uh, senior level Taliban delegation to visit China before the end of July, and this was before Taliban uh, launched the campaign to rapidly take over the uh, the whole country. I think for the Chinese, that means that while Beijing finally has batted on the right horse and now Taliban has taken over the country, I think the Chinese are looking at a very encouraging and a positive uh, opening of the relationship between China and the potential Taliban regime, although the diplomatic recognition has not really happened so far. So did the rapid collapse of the Afghan government take Chinese analysts of Afghanistan by surprise? Were they surprised by the rapid fall of the of Kabul and of the Ghani government? I think the Chinese were like everyone else that I think everybody has been surprised, not by the result of this takeover, but by how rapidly it happened. Because like the US side, the intelligence uh, assessment and the military assessment is that they could potentially last between six to 12 months, then from three to six months. But what has happened is virtually within a matter of days, the uh, Taliban was able to take over. And the fact that President Ghani just fled the country I think that also came as a, a surprise for, for many. So I would say that given the Chinese were also reading a lot of the, the U.S. media reports and how the USG has been assessing the situation in, uh, in Afghanistan, I think the Chinese were surprised, but may not be more surprised than the rest of the world. So as you mentioned earlier, Foreign Minister uh, Wang Yi met with the Taliban on July 28th. And many observers anticipate that China will probably be one of the first countries to recognize the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. I'm curious, in your view, what is China's broader strategic interest in Afghanistan and how does that fit into the Chinese government having a good relationship with the Taliban? I think there are primarily two angles. The first one is a security threat that across the board, when China looks at Afghanistan, it sees potential security fallout and security spillover effect into China. And given that Afghanistan borders China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, and so far China's Uyghur policy has, has encountered a lot of difficulties and criticisms. So I think the Chinese are extra sensitive to any security spillover effect from Afghanistan should this civil war or this domestic conflict continue. And when, when China looks at the Afghan conflict in, internally, there's also this uh, emphasis on the fact that the Afghanistan territory has been used by many terrorist groups as a safe haven, as a training ground. So 
so far, we also know the Chinese government sees Afghanistan as a safe haven for the Uyghur militants that aimed at launching jihad in China because of the uh, the, the policy that the Chinese has taken has been uh, implementing towards the, the Uyghurs and also the religious differences between the Chinese atheist Communist Party government and the, the atheist education they're trying to pursue in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. So yes, so coming back to the, the essential question, the point is China sees Afghanistan as a potential safe haven for Uyghur militants and Uyghur terrorists. And the more unstable the country is, the more threat from the Uyghur militants and Uyghur groups will be against China. That's the first lens. The second lens is uh, through potential economic um, investment, economic opportunities through Afghanistan. Given its uh, geographical and geopolitical location, um, I guess you could say that Afghan, Afghanistan really sits on the, uh, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative and also um, as a pretty crucial location for the China-Pakistan economic corridor. So Afghan's value lies in its uh, geographical location and the fact that it does have pretty rich uh, mineral resources. So if the country stabilizes and China is able to launch more investment projects in the country, I think there is also the economic perspective that the Chinese are looking at Afghanistan for and it could potentially benefit from. So something that you just mentioned right there and something a lot of our listeners have probably heard is that China is eager to invest in Afghanistan with the One Belt, One Road initiative. And I'm curious in your view, is China going to increase in its investment immediately or is it going to wait a little bit longer for the situation to stabilize? Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, honestly. So yes, we do hear this narrative about Afghanistan being a major economic attraction for Chinese investment. So my question is, while Belt and Road Initiative has been there for eight years, how come nothing has happened in Afghanistan so far? Well, the answer is apparently lies in the, the fact that Afghanistan has not been politically stable and the lack of security for the investment has deterred all investors from every country, China included. So if you look at the, the level of the Chinese foreign direct investment into Afghanistan as a whole country, for the whole year of 2020, the total FDI from China towards Afghanistan was 4.4 million US dollars. And for the first half of this year, is uh, the accumulated total is 2.4 million US dollars. I mean, that's smaller than some of the, the Chinese projects, such as single project in Southeast Asia or in South Asia. So I would say that Chinese investment in Afghanistan, yes, there is a potential, but no, I don't think it will happen unless and until there is a stable government in Afghanistan that is able to produce peace on the ground. I almost would like to, to argue, to hypothesize that the Chinese, the view that the Chinese will now step into the field of void and to, to save Afghanistan at this point is almost a position about U.S.-China relations and about the, the Chinese perception about the United States rather than a stated mission to, to help Afghanistan. Because in this case, I think, yes, Afghanistan does have things to offer in terms of economic opportunities, but I think there are also vast majority of the country experts, meaning experts who are familiar with the history and with reality of, of Afghanistan in China, that are much more cautious about China launching itself, throwing itself into, into the graveyard of empires. There are also uh, prominent Chinese economists pointing out that given the unstable political atmosphere in the country, what the Chinese should, should focus on is the provision and supply of small goods, of uh, small products, the Chinese products into Afghanistan, rather than focused on large equity investment. So I, I do see that there is this voice in China seeing this as a strategic opportunity for China to appear to establish its superiority to the United States. But I also think that the overwhelming majority of experts and officials in China are extremely cautious about Afghanistan because after all, China doesn't have the best information sources, access, and also understanding of the complexity of Afghanistan. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I think we're going to have to cut it off there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Joy Neumeyer is an historian of Russia and the Soviet Union. She has also worked as a journalist in Moscow. Joy, thank you so much for joining me. I want to start with a very basic question. How has the Russian government responded to the situation in Afghanistan? I would say that the Russian government's response so far has been quite restrained and cautious. The other day, Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, said that the Kremlin is monitoring the situation in Kabul and that it's concerned about rising instability, but that Russia is not currently planning to send troops to Afghanistan or anything of that nature. Russia, unlike some other countries, has not evacuated its embassy in Kabul. Um, So Russia still has diplomats on the ground, although just today I think it's started evacuating some Russian citizens who are in Afghanistan. And Russia has received assurances from the Taliban that its diplomats and staff at the embassy will be protected. So I think they're, they're trying to take quite a cautious line at present and see how the situation continues to play out. So did the Russian government anticipate such a quick collapse of the Afghan government? That's a tricky question. I would say that based on past experience, it doesn't come as a shock. Uh, although in the Russian case, with the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, the Afghan government that they had been propping up lasted five months after the final withdrawal of Soviet troops. So they may have, again, based on their own past experience, expected, uh, as I'm sure the U.S. government did, for more time before the Taliban would indeed take over Kabul. Uh, So I really think that people in Russia have been just as taken aback as much of the rest of the world has at the speed and chaos with which the Afghan government has fallen. So how has Russian state media covered the withdrawal so far? There's, I would say there's a bifurcation in coverage. On the one hand, you have the Russian state media, which is pretty much all of the television channels, which is how many people in Russia continue to get their news. And they have been indulging in a great deal of schadenfreude over the humiliation of the U.S. with the collapse of their mission. And I would say this schadenfreude is based on a very selectively positive memory of Russia's own involvement in Afghanistan. For example, there was a program on the state news channel, Channel One, the other day that quoted the head of the Russian Association of Veterans of Afghanistan saying how the Soviet Union, when it left, uh, left behind in the country schools and roads and infrastructure Uh, all of these positive benefits to their occupation, whereas the Americans are leaving behind only a bunch of chaos and rubble uh, and destruction in their wake. So, of course, this is a very selective narrative. It overlooks the fact that an estimated anywhere from 800,000 to 1.2 million Afghans were killed during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But nevertheless, this is an opportunity Uh, at least for state media and Kremlin image makers, to burnish Russia's own reputation uh, in its past involvement in Afghanistan, and to indeed present a new opportunity for Putin to take on a new role as a, a leader, a moderator of the region who will fill the vacuum of leadership that has been left by the U.S. withdrawal. There's been lots of reports in Russian media, state media, about Putin securing the border of Tajikistan, Uh, and having phone calls with Modi of India to talk about what they will do to prevent a ripple effect in the surrounding region. On the other hand, there's other news outlets which are not allied with the state and are more neutral or moderate or even oppositional, uh, despite the media crackdown that has continued to freeze the Russian media landscape. And they are more in line with coverage in the rest of the world that's just kind of in horror about the plight of Afghan civilians, uh, worried about the destabilizing effect in the region and the world, and viewing the U.S. withdrawal as more of a humanitarian and political catastrophe, rather than seeing it as an opportunity. So something that you just mentioned, Russia has been holding military exercises in Tajikistan, along with a few other Central Asian countries. What message do you think that's intended to send uh, to the region? Well, certainly, you know, Russia has no interest in, you know, chaos in Central Asia. So on the one hand, yeah, they they want to make their military capacity clear and perhaps their potential to become more involved clear. On the other hand, they are, I would say, pursuing a cautious relationship with the Taliban as strategic allies, 
as part of their plan not to destabilize the situation further. So I don't think that the Russian government is interested in doing anything too provocative at this point in time that could destabilize that very tentative partnership. I want to take a step back for a second. You you are a Soviet historian by training, and I'm curious, how has the collective memory of the Soviet war in Afghanistan affected in your mind? You mentioned it a little bit, but affected uh, Russian news coverage and at least the collective memory. It's a really interesting question. So perhaps your listeners already know, but the Soviet Union was in a war in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. They initially invaded to back up the imperiled communist leadership that had taken over the country. And much like the Americans thought that this would be a quick exercise in nation building, they would get in and out within a few months, and that would be the end of it. Of course, they then encountered a highly motivated insurgency and became locked in basically an impossible struggle over the following years, and finally left under very unfavorable conditions uh, in February 1989. Uh, Around the time of the withdrawal, the war was incredibly unpopular. It had not received very much media coverage in the preceding years, but the end of the 1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev relaxed state media censorship, which led to a flood of negative coverage of the invasion. There was a huge amount of popular momentum against it by the late 80s, The Soviet government itself condemned the war as a moral and political error in 1989, and it it was very widely viewed as a mistake. In the years since the Soviet collapse, especially since the rise of Putin, there's been an almost 180 in terms of how the war is remembered and what lessons have been gained from it. If in the 90s, uh, veterans of Afghanistan thought themselves to be victims of state neglect, They were very angry that the war had been so widely condemned by their countrymen. They then became strategic allies of Vladimir Putin's party, United Russia. Um, Many of them went on to serve in OMON, which is riot police, which has been dispatched to put down protests across Russia. Uh, Some veterans of Afghanistan were involved in the invasion of Crimea in 2014. So there's been a real shift in how the Russian government has viewed the war in Afghanistan as it tries to reassert its role on the global stage. You know, it's now very much in line with Russian intervention in Syria or other places around the world where it's seeking to challenge the U.S. Um, So I would say the interests of veterans and of the increasingly militaristic and patriotic government under Putin since 2014 with the invasion of Crimea have really coalesced into a completely different memory of the war as a just cause. I think there's a poll in 1991 in which 88% of respondents said that the invasion of Afghanistan had been a mistake. They redid that poll in 2019, and only 55% of respondents said that the war had been a mistake. So you can see with this shift in state ideology, and as veterans have become kind of political and security players, public memory of the war has, has really changed. My last question for you is, in this moment of U.S. withdrawal, I'm curious if you've noticed any parallels between any narratives that are sort of forming on the American side and those of the Soviet narratives as they were withdrawing from Afghanistan. I think there are some parallels, especially in how, despite the fact that uh, the majority of the Soviet leadership and the Soviet population by the time of the Soviet withdrawal did want to end the war, there was still a very vocal contingent that thought that the Soviet Union was betraying the Afghan people by withdrawing its forces and basically leading it to be consumed by the rapidly advancing insurgency. Um, In the late 80s, the person who was at that time the Minister of Foreign Affairs was quoted as saying, you know, Afghanistan is ravaged, we're living in a terrible state, we simply have to back up the Afghan government, we have a responsibility. Those voices were outweighed, and the withdrawal proceeded apace. So I, I think that that mixture of conflicting feelings about whether to stay and whether to leave and whether withdrawal was the right thing to do or whether it was a betrayal of what the government had done in the preceding years is quite similar. And then, of course, there's the broader context in which the insurgency has simply taken over so fast all of the strategic points that the Americans and the Soviets uh, had struggled to hold on to. So I think there's there's also a, a similar degree of 
you know, shock and disappointment and bitterness in how fruitless the entire engagement in Afghanistan appeared to be. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me, Joy. Thank you so much. Constanza Stelzenmuller is the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Brookings Institution, where she is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Program. She has also worked as a journalist for the German weekly Die Zeit and has traveled to Afghanistan several times. Before we get into the broader implications of the U.S.'s withdrawal, I was wondering if you could help walk our listeners through the German government's efforts thus far to evacuate people from Afghanistan and from the Kabul airport. Sure. So the the basic facts are are this. German evacuation operations started on August 16th, just a little over a week ago. And since then, more than 5,000 people, German nationals, presumably allied nationals, and Afghans who have worked for German institutions or forces on the ground in, in one way or another have been brought out of the country. The way this works is that the Germans are working out of the Kabul airport uh, like everybody else, and they are doing an air bridge to the Uzbek capital, Tashkent. And what they're using are German military transport planes, the Air 400M, which were developed as a European project. Germany has been one of the U.S.'s closest allies throughout the war in Afghanistan. And I'm curious, just moving to the broader reaction, what has the German government's reaction been to the, the hasty withdrawal? Well, there was a parliamentary debate today in the German Bundestag, the federal legislature, which was actually more centered on the omissions of the German government itself. There's been huge criticism of the government, the chancellery in particular, but also the foreign ministry. And I think to a slightly lesser degree, the defense ministry for the way in which this was coordinated for what the opposition is criticizing as a failure of foresight, a failure of planning. We can perhaps get to that later, but there has also been a great deal of public criticism, not so much by the government, but but in public and in the media, of Biden's decision. That said, the critique focuses not so much on the decision to leave. That I think was pretty much prefigured. If anybody who knew of the president's record, I think had to know that the president was going to be extremely disinclined to keep American forces on the ground and in fact was feeling under intense pressure to end this operation which is is in the public associated with with the so-called forever wars. But the criticism is directed at the way in which this was done, the lack of consultation with the allies when American forces first left in the beginning of the summer. And then again, a lack of consultation when the sort of final drawdown was, was, was announced. And I think that is currently making for a somewhat complicated environment between Washington and Berlin. Do you think that, that the chancellery and, and sort of the rest of the German government was surprised by, first off, how quickly the government in Kabul collapsed? And secondly, President Biden's decision to stick with the August 31st drawdown deadline? I don't know whether surprise is the right word. Um, I think sometimes in European capital, you get a sense that hope triumphs over experience when it shouldn't. Um, I am I'm not privy to the conversations that have been had between the Chancery and, and, and the White House. But one does get a sense that somehow the gears weren't interlocking. Either somebody wasn't communicating effectively from the National Security Council or people in Berlin weren't picking up. Based on my past experience as an observer of the bilateral relationship, both of those things can happen on the same time, at the same time. So Germany has in the past accepted a number of Syrian refugees and other re- refugees from the Middle East. I'm curious, has there been any discussion around accepting a number of Afghan refugees? Well, the precise number of the, the big refugee wave that came in 2016 and 2015 is 1.2 million. They were mostly 
Syrian refugees, but there were also some Afghans at the time and a number of refugees from other countries in the Middle East or Northern Africa. And that at the time was welcomed by Germans at first. Then it turned out the German institutions, local, regional, were appeared to be overwhelmed for a while. There was a huge public debate about this and it very nearly brought, brought down the Merkel government. Five years later, it looks as though we have mostly managed to integrate the large majority of, of that influx. Um, most of those were allowed to stay and now have work permits and are basically going to stay in Germany. But given the, 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 the political and social turbulence that that caused, you know, of course, that's what is on everybody's mind as we contemplate taking in these Afghans who have worked for Germany. But, but there, there is an important difference here. One, I don't think that this is going to get anywhere near that number that we had in 2015, 2016. And secondly, I think what maybe sometimes gets lost in this debate is just how much these 20 years that the transatlantic alliance, NATO, and, and my own country, Germany, have been engaged in, in Afghanistan, how much that, that has tied us to the country and how much that has meant for personal relationships. I mean, an entire generation of German policymakers, officers, soldiers, veterans, NGO workers, and journalists went through this experience. And, and frankly, that includes me. I was a journalist at the time when this began in 2001, 2002, and I, I went to Afghanistan several times to cover this. And so this is something that we are much more familiar with. And a lot of these people who worked for German forces or agencies on the ground actually speak quite good German. Some of them have German work permits and have been going back and forth between Germany and Afghanistan. And so I think there is both a greater sense of familiarity and a much, much greater sense of obligation towards these people. And I think we're going to try and make it work. It's obviously fair to raise the question whether these Afghans that, and their families that we are now about to take in in Germany, you know, might not also contain a number of folks who would be inclined to radicalize or who are actual extremists. And I think the experience of 2015, 2016 showed two things. One, you can't exclude that. And in fact, you have to watch out for it. It is not unreasonable to be watchful for that. But on the whole, looking back these five years on the experience of, of the great migration crisis, as it was called at the time, while there were some incidents of actual terrorists coming along or people being radicalized ex post facto because they found themselves for psychological or other reasons unable to integrate and in fact spiraled into psychological instability or into radicalism, Actually, that number was quite low. Yes, we had incidents of violence. Yes, we had some murders. Yes, we had people who had who were arrested and 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 were and were sent back to their countries. But I think we're talking about something in the tens of cases. I'd be surprised if it exceeded a hundred of one point two million. And again, this group that we are contemplating integrating is these are people that in many, many cases, we have established long-term working relationships with, where people actually know each other, have work contracts, files. So I, I think this is a really quite a different category that, that we're looking at. That said, I think the, the, the greater question is, is what happens to families and dependents. And I think we are going to have to pay much more attention to making sure that wives and children and other dependents will have the opportunity to integrate into German society and are given opportunities to do so in a culturally sensitive way that both makes expectations clear but doesn't raise unrealistic expectations. So Germany and France both have elections coming up I'm curious if you if you think this entire situation in Afghanistan will have any 
effect on, on these elections? Well, the German election is already proving to be historically volatile. Merkel is, Chancellor Merkel is not running again. She's the first incumbent to decide not to run again after 16 years. And the potential front runners and the coalitions that they could govern with seem to be changing by the week. It's really given all of us Germany election watchers whiplash. But I'm seeing the enormous concern and salience of this subject of the Afghanistan evacuation and the fate of the Afghans who might be left behind if we do withdraw on the 31st of August in the election. And I think that it raises in the mind of many Germans the question of credibility and reliability of our own policymakers and politicians. And I think the key question to watch for will be whether it gives Germany's own hard right party, the alternative for Germany, any traction in polls and at the election itself. At this point, it doesn't seem like it. And part of the reason for that, again, is that I think ordinary Germans do feel a sense of obligation towards this operation, a sense of identification. But you know we've got nearly four weeks to go, so this is something I at least will be watching for very carefully. So zooming out a little bit, uh, I want to move to more of the European Union's reaction a little bit more broadly. Are there meaningful differences between the ways that each country views the situation in Afghanistan? You know, I am not sure that I'm in a position to answer that question with as much confidence as I'd like. But my educated guess is this. It depends on two things. The composition of the government in the European country that we're talking about. There are some governments in Europe that are populist or have been in coalition with populists. They're a minority, but they do exist. And the other thing is experience with integrating immigrant groups and refugee groups, not just in 2015-16 in the context of the Syrian humanitarian disaster, but even before that. And I think that is what is going to determine how publics and policymakers deal with this new situation. But again, I think what often gets lost, I think, in the American debate is, is just how many European allies have been working on the ground with Americans and with international NGOs and organizations for the past 20 years. There is a duality to this operation that I think not many people who aren't experts on this topic really understand. There were always two operations working in parallel in Afghanistan. One was Operation Enduring Freedom, which was an American-led and mostly American-run operation, which included fairly massive anti-Al-Qaeda, anti-terrorist operations. It did involve some allies, but they were essentially, they're much smaller and essentially subordinate to American leadership. And then there was the NATO-led operation, ISAF, um, which operated out of, out of Kabul and was much more directed at working with development agencies, at nation building, at stabilizing provincial headquarters. And there the leadership took turns there were British commanders of ISAF, there were American, and there were Germans, among, other, among others. And so there, Americans and European allies were, were working much more as co-equals. And when a European was the commander of ISAF, the American troops that were seconded to ISAF were working under his command. I, th I think that that is, that is important for Americans to understand just how deeply Europeans have been engaged in, in, in this operation uh, over the past 20 years. I mean, thousands of European veterans of the military, I'm, I'm just looking at the military now, thousands, tens, tens of thousands of European soldiers and officers have gone through this operation since 2001. So there, let's dig into that a little bit more. There's There's been a lot of reporting that 
you know, European allies are feeling betrayed. And I'm wondering, is, is media coverage of that narrative overblown or has this withdrawal or the nature of the withdrawal seriously put into question the US's security commitments to its allies? Again, I think you have to look at different levels here. Having been a journalist for a decade and a half, and, and I was defense and security editor of a German weekly Die Zeit, I've spent a lot of time with military forces on the ground, beginning in actually 1993 in Somalia and ending and ending with Afghanistan. I was on an embed list for Iraq when when I when I shifted jobs to a think tank. But and my experience working with and talking to soldiers is that unsurprisingly, because they are working in a field where literally they are putting their and others' lives on the line, they have a sense of duty, honor, and obligation that is hard for civilians to understand. That's one aspect. The other aspect, and I think it's also really important to understand this, is that many soldiers who worked in Afghanistan, particularly those who were engaged in anti-terrorism and combat operations, some of which were incredibly fierce, and I think Western publics have almost forgotten about that. And the veterans of these operations some of them were wounded, not just in body, but also in soul. They were traumatized. And unlike, say, the veterans of the Korean and the Vietnam Wars, these veterans don't return to oblivion. Social media in particular give them networks and ways of communicating their experiences and their feelings that previous generations of Western war veterans never had any access to. And so the narratives of these veterans inform not just each other, their own networks, but they they can speak to the public at large and they can speak to policymakers. And I think we're going to find that those narratives are going to be very important in informing future decisions by policymakers and the will of publics to approve them. That is one of the most important points that's currently getting lost. And betrayal, again, is a, is a category of feeling that is, I think civilians wonder why, why people feel betrayed. And again, in, in systems that operate on an honor code, betrayal is the worst thing that can happen to a soldier or to an officer. When a soldier or an officer feels betrayed by his superiors, by civilian decision makers, by the public, that means that you're looking at a cleavage between a social cleavage, a political cleavage between those individuals and society and politics at large. And that's never good for a society. A lot of people listening to these podcasts, I think, will have seen the extraordinarily profoundly moving speech that the British legislator, conservative legislator, Tom Tugendhat gave about a week ago in the British parliament. He himself was an officer who had served in Afghanistan. And I think he expressed this sense of betrayal in a way that was accessible, not just to his military peers, but to the public at large. And I urge everybody who hasn't seen that to watch it because that, that explains these feelings. I have enormous sympathy for that. And I have to say that I myself, though I've never served, but, but only have just spent a lot of time with soldiers and officers, have enormous empathy for that. And, and to some degree feel the anguish and the despair at having to leave Afghanistan in this way to a fighting force as ruthless as the Taliban are in the same way. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. The podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer is Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.